Hello, and thank you for joining us. This is Brian, your host of the Parish the Thought Show. The opinions of said host and our guests have not been sanitized or scientifically tested, so please consume at your own risk. Ladies and gentlemen, and whoever else is listening, my guest today is retired Utah State Prison Correction Officer Jason Gurney. He spent 24 years inside the prison system. Early in his career as a young 22-year-old officer, he played a small part in HBO's documentary Gladiator Day's Anatomy of a Prison Murder, the story of Troy Kell, now on death row for the murder of a fellow inmate back in 1996. We talk about the day-to-day experiences and the challenges of trying to make a difference in the lives of our incarcerated brothers in an often thankless job and how he kept his humanity Okay. All right, Jason Gurney. Thanks for being with me, man. Absolutely. Uh, you're here, and I, I've known what your career was for many years, but never really thought about having you on until uh, recently. You you were sharing a story about the uh, that documentary called uh, Gladiator. Gladiator the, Days: The Anatomy of a Prison Murder. Anatomy of a Prison Murder, and that was based. You well, you just tell kind of fill us in. What that was based on what. And and then your involvement in that. So I actually wasn't involved in that, but that was uh, based on a murder that happened down in the Gunnison Penitentiary. HBO did a documentary on it. The inmate's name was Troy Kell, and uh, he stabbed to death a black inmate 67 times. He's now sitting on death row up in the Draper prison. And that's where I came into the documentary is working with Troy in uh, Draper. Okay, well, we'll, we'll we'll touch on that. We'll get back to that. So you you've been in you were in for you're retired now. Mm-hmm. Yep, retired. Been for about a year. A year, and you're in for twenty four years. Yep. All right. What possesses someone to go? Hey, I want to go do that. I want to go babysit adults. Right. That's so the I, perception. So tell me how you. I got can't into speak that. for all the other officers that work there, but for myself <clears throat> and a lot of staff that start out at the prison, it. It's a stepping stone into law enforcement. It's usually people want to go to, to the streets and be a street cop. Or, and usually the prison is where people start. For me, my brother was actually working at Jueb County at the time. I had just got off my mission. I was looking for a secure career. And I knew law enforcement was a secure career with a 20-year retirement. So I started at the prison with the full intentions of a couple years and moving on to the county jails or, or even the city. But... I found that I got there and I found that I really enjoyed the people that I worked with, which is everything in a job. Uh, my, like your coworkers? Yeah. Okay. My fellow officers had some great relationships, great people, and, and we moved up through the ranks together, a lot of us, and, and it just became a place that I didn't want to leave. I, I enjoyed it. Once you get there and you get used to it, it's not the nostalgic place that you... This, the, the, the nostalgically horrible place that you... Yeah. It's the, just the a perception. Regular, right, right. The perception is, and there is a lot of that, but when you deal with it every day, it just becomes a, a job. And so does it... Because a few years ago, I was in a career crisis, and I, I tried out for the Utah Highway Patrol, and I was in the, the process for six or seven months, and then I got voted off the island, and... The uh, the officer that interviewed me said, uh, you know, why do you want to do this? And I just said, well, I, th- I think, you know, just the fact that I'm older than a lot of the guys applying, I think that a lot of life experience could be really helpful. And he said, eh, I think you probably ought to go to the jail and, or start out in the prisons or the jails as a guard there. And I was, that was just, no, I don't know, I'm out. And I was, I was out anyway, but I mentally, I don't know if I could have done that because of probably the perception I have that, it is this dark place that sucks your soul. I have another friend that works in the Salt Lake County Jail, and he says he doesn't he doesn't talk of it like you do. Yeah. So and there's people at the at the prison that aren't going to have the same experiences, and it's not for everybody. I'll to say that right out the gates. There's yeah. people that it's too much, you know, too much for the mind, and it is. It's very stressful job, very stressful on the mind. But going back to something you said, uh, so first of all, it. To me, it's a lot. It's it's. There's a lot of negativity with corrections, 
because the media has put it out, you know, you're a prison guard, you know, they, and they refer to that. That's a media term, guards. But if you, if you talk with officers in there, usually they don't like to be called guards because they're not guards. They're actually correctional officers and, and they do so much more than just guard. There's so much more to the job than just being a guard. You know, they're actually um, trying to correct behaviors. They're, there's programming opportunities for these offenders and, and they have to communicate with them and show respect and, and get these offenders to follow certain rules in a, you know, in a place that's very, you know, chaotic. And so there, it's a tough job, but, but it's a job that, uh, has some rewards. Unfortunately, uh, I don't think they get paid nearly enough. You know, and that's what drives a lot of people away, as well as the mental strain of dealing with some horrific things, you know, that the normal person doesn't have to deal with. The horrific things that are happening inside or the horrific things that got those people there? Both. Okay. Both. So you're, you know, when I first started there at the prison, I used to read their PSIs, which is a pre-sentence investigative report. You know, it goes over their whole crime, very detailed. And I found for me that that was not beneficial to read those because you tend to judge the offender a little bit different, you know. So I quit reading those PSIs till I got into programming and, and had to for certain things. But I just managed the offender. I didn't. I knew he was there because <clears throat> we have to know basics. We have to know, are you a sex offender? Are you a gangbanger? Are you... And there are certain things we have to know to house them appropriately, but... I didn't like to get into the details of what your sex offense was or because <clears throat> that can cause you to be, you know, not as fair. Did, did, that, did that happen to you? Did you feel like you were doing that because you maybe had too much information and you were? Yeah. And I still, I still would be respectful, but if, but I've had some offenders who, who I knew their crimes very well and, and they would say something to me, you know, judging what I was doing and, and some of that would come up. So I quit reading them. Just don't want to know. I'll just manage you for who you are. And and because you really have to show a lot of respect in there to get respect. It's it's not a place you can just go in and think, I got the badge. I can, I can do whatever I want. Yeah, I can do it. And some staff try to go down that road. And usually they end up with broken nose and broken glasses at some point. Because you... You really, if you want to be a successful officer in there, you have to show respect and and have the offenders respect what you're saying, or they're just not going to give two craps. Yeah, and what do they have to lose already, right? You're already in there. Wow. They can only be pushed so far. Which, that's, you know, respect. And the other factor is, you're going into the tiers, there's each tier, like say a unit, would have three tiers generally. When you say tiers, like lo- levels, yes. physical yes, sections, levels. we'll call it, you oh. know, three different sections. Some of them are based, the older prison is tiers, and then the newer areas were more sections. But there's three of them, and the, the older ones, you're, not, you're talking 64 inmates on a tier. You know, and then there's three of those tiers, 192 offenders on a block. And there's you and one other staff member, another officer in the control room. So you're usually out on the tier a lot of times in, in general population with just yourself, with that many offenders. So the math tells you you're not going to... If something turns bad, you're not coming yeah. out of this Yeah, you're, you're favorable. Gonna, and even with two, even if you have two staff, it's still, you're not, you know, so you have to understand what environment you're in and that, that you want to communicate and respect and, and, and have the offenders know you're not, you're not there to punish them, you're there to... You know, you're there to help them get through their prison stay. So were you often, as part of your daily routine, just walking amongst? Yes. Yeah, that's a daily, every day. You just walk around amongst them and just, what do you do? How, get, tell me, a day in the life of? So it, so this depends, you know. If, this is general population I'm talking about. So over in maximum security where you've seen the video of the of the gladiator days. That's different. You're not going to be, you still go in the sections, but you always have two officers and you're never in direct contact with the offenders over there. They're always cuffed and shackled. And anytime they're out of the cell, they're cuffed and shackled. At least it's supposed to be. (laughs) Stuff happens. But now in what I'm talking about, it's more general. 
population. So inmates that are not in maximum security, they're in a medium security setting. So that day starts out, you go to work, you pop all the inmates out of their cell. Um, based on their their levels, they have different privilege levels based upon their behavior. And that's what you use to, to manage them. So they can hire their privilege levels, the, the higher lockdown times they get out of cell, the more commissary items that they can purchase. It's just like kids, basically. Trying to normalize their life is yeah. based on behavior. Like, they yeah, can like buy candy kid. bars. They can buy things if they have higher privilege levels. If they act out and they're doing things like doing drugs, getting write-ups, then those, those levels come down, and that's how you manage them. Um, our job is to go in and, and search cells and, and uh, just make sure that they're not doing stupid stuff and, and walk in the tier because you get a feel. So if you walk it every day, I, you get to the point where you know every offender on your unit and you know what their normal behavior is, is like because you, you're in daily. And it's just like this. We're having regular conversations. You know, they ask me, they get to know when you're on vacation. So, hey, what'd you do on your vacation? You'd, and some staff don't like to talk about much personal. I didn't give them really a lot of personal information, but I didn't mind talking to them general yeah. stuff, you know, just to let them know, hey, I'm... You're human, they're I'm human. I'm human, you're human, and we can talk about some of this. And But then when you go out on the tier and realize something's off with this guy, you you now know that immediately because you've invested that time walking the tears and, and doing your job. So that's what the daily daily jobs. Then you count them, you know, two two times in the day and then about every hour at night. You do stand-up counts in the night to make sure they're physically okay. Because these offenders, will, they'll get in fights. and But, I mean, it's just like anywhere. You, you don't see everything. There's assaults that happen every day that you don't even know about as an officer. I've always wanted to be a fly on the wall inside the section. But usually when an officer goes onto the section, the inmates will yell Huda or, you know, something to alert the other inmates. Hey, there's an officer on the tier. And then they'll oh, stop. Is there, is there like codes and language that they come up with? Or do they know it coming? Yeah. Is it something they bring in from the outside? No, so they learn it in there. So the, a lot of times they'll say mail call, you know, as soon as the officer walks in, mail call. Because you know, <laughs> usually we come in to bring them their mail. Oh, okay. And so when, you know, and I, I always joke, no, you know, I don't have any mail, even though I know what they're doing, you know, they're, they're just letting everybody know I'm there. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> you can't, it's very difficult to sneak up on the offenders because they always have, they'll always have one or two. Just looking out, look out. Their smart. whole job is to look out on that door. It's kind of like a higher, is it like a hierarchy they sort of set up with amongst each other? Just, oh, yeah. You know. Yeah. The prison's a very, very political place. Um, and the gay, obviously the gangs are, are the ones running it. So you'll have different gangs running different sections, you know, white supremacist gangs. They'll be running this section. That blows my mind that if you're that way on the outside and probably a lot of that behavior and ideology got you in, but yet when you're in, you still continue to, to yeah. operate well, that way. Why did they, why do you think I think it's is? even worse at coming in because who are they in there with? All of their, all their homies. You know, all of their friends, some of them, even all their family, you know, this is their life. So getting out is, they know they're going to come back. Are they, almost more, are they almost wanting to? You think? Yeah, I think a lot of them, it, it doesn't really matter. They don't mind being in prison. It's they become they, institutionalized. That's all they know, yeah. And yeah. when you say institutionalized, I, I mean, I've heard that phrase a lot. What does that mean? That means that's, that's become their home. That's what they know. And like comfortable with that. Comfortable with that. They they understand the political processes each day. They understand their roles. And then when that offender gets out of prison, they're lost. They have no clue what to do because they're not in that. Because the prison's a very structured system. The inmates get racked in at a certain time. They get up at a certain time, chow's fed at the same time every day, three times a day. It's very structured. And for a lot of these offenders, that's the only structure they have in their life. So when they get out of prison... When they have all the all the freedoms and choices are up to them, yeah. it's, it's, it's just, there's no structure. So in the movie Shawshank Redemption, have you seen that one? It's been a long time. When the old, I think when the old man, his name was Brooks in that character in that movie, he'd been in for fifty years, and he was just a sweet old man. Mm-hmm. And he was probably seventy five, and he gets out, and he he just does. He's lost. 
Mm-hmm. Like you said, he's lost. He doesn't know what to do. He ends up taking his life because he's just like, I can't. I, I don't like it. I want to go back inside. They're my friends. And, yeah. You know. That's a real thing. Yeah. yeah. That's a one. Yeah. So one, one time I had uh, an offender who he was paroling. He was supposed to parole that day. And we went to get him to parole. It was in maximum security. <clears throat> and he refused to parole. He refused to cuff up because we had to cuff him up to get him out of the cell. Oh, he didn't want to go. Yeah, and he said, you know, F you. I'm not going to cuff up. And we we looked at each other like, I've never had this experience. Usually people want to get out. Yeah, and so he was going out on parole. So we didn't know what to do because it's like, do we, do we force sell him? That's what we do generally if people don't comply. You know, we'll get the team and go in and, and extract him. Manhandle him, for lack it, of a better term. Yeah, in a professional yes you know yeah. way <laughs> yeah understood you know use the least amount of force necessary to resolve the situation so usually when you get the team together to go in and force sell an inmate they'll 99 of the time they don't want to fight five well, guys yeah I guess. So they, they're gonna usually cuff up they know math really well yeah. when it comes to those <laughs> if numbers. they don't then you got a shield guy, and it's very assigned. You got a guy who takes one arm, guy takes the left arm, guy takes right leg, guy takes left leg. And it's very controlled, and yeah. But you're not going in to beat him up. You're just going in to restrain him and get him yeah. out of there. But anyway, so this offender, he didn't want to go. So we we had to actually go and call the warden and say, "Do you want us to force sell extract this guy?" You know, basically drag him out of the prison, <laughs> kick him and scream and throw him onto the streets. You know, what's this offender gonna do? I mean, I, I have a pretty good guess that I don't want to be the first person that runs into this offender. Because he's going to do something. Yeah, because he doesn't want to be out on the streets, so he's going to commit a, a crime. In, in my mind, he's going to commit a crime fast to get back into the institution. So we revoked, the warden said, no, nah, just revoke his parole. They got the board, and they revoked his parole, and we left him in. But that's, that goes to the point of some offenders do not want to get out. That is interesting. He didn't have a home. You know, he was homeless when he came in. So, so no, I mean, no one outside. No one, no to one go outside. To. So what, what's he going to go to? That makes perfect sense. But from our perspective, having freedom, you would be, I would be, want to be the furthest away from that place as yeah. possible. Yeah, but when your freedom is living under the viaduct, you know, doing drugs or whatever to yeah. keep yourself mentally sane, then sometimes the prison is a better alternative. Yeah. Which... That creates all kinds of problems, you know, because it's expensive to house offenders. Yeah. So, but yeah, they do get very much institutionalized. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It's just your your, your brain is trained a different way. And this, you know, this Troy Kell guy, but he's 55 now. He's older than me. Yeah, yeah he'd be, yeah, that's about what <clears> he And been did. in since he was 18. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. He was a Nevada, so he actually came in as an interstate compact a lot of times. <clears throat> what we do is we'll trade one of our pieces of junk, you know, management problem inmates for another state's management problem. So basically, all you're doing is trading. So this is like this is this is like an NFL draft and <laughs> yeah. trade, trade yeah, somewhat, yeah, free agent. Yeah. So we try to get rid of one and get, and then they try to get. So anyway, that's how we ended up with Troy Kale. He actually committed his crime, if you remember, in that documentary in Nevada. Yeah, the original. So he was one in the Nevada him. state prison, and he got compacted to us he wasn't in on a on a life without parole he was, he was in for i want to say 15 to 20 something like that <clears throat> but he could have got out of prison until he committed that pretty yeah. heinous crime and then that put him on the death penalty now he's a utah state inmate because he committed that crime yeah so he's he's no longer a nevada inmate and you mentioned something that we were talking about death penalty and, and your your perspective on it was pretty interesting so tell me yeah, so, remember that. you know, <clears throat> probably a lot of people, I feel like, have the same opinion as, that I do that work there. And it, I believe in the death penalty if it was used appropriately. Um, meaning, you get so many appeals, or we know that we have video evidence that something's happened, you know. But the way the system is, it's kind of broken, and they get endless amounts of appeals and cost the state tons and tons of money and in that scenario then i i think they should just do away with it and call it life without parole and give them a an appeal or two and then be done with it because it's just it, it's a waste of time in terms know. of like attorney fees yeah mostly yeah court fees and you know, all those appeals cost the state tons of money 
AKA all the taxpayers. Yes. Basically. Yep. And so the death penalty really isn't. It's not a deterrent. Yeah. Anymore. Or ever, maybe ever was. I worked 24 years and we had two executions in 24 years. So that tells you. Yeah. Not very many. Yeah. Earlier you said one of your jobs is to like inspect cells Mm -hmm. for whatever. Like, what are you looking for? So you're looking for any illegal contraband drugs, weapons, just anything that they're not allowed to have. Is illegal in there the same as illegal outside the jail? Yeah, and and even more. Like you it could be so they can have only so many underwear, so many shirts, so many blankets, so many sheets. So a lot of times if you're doing a matrix search, then you're gonna bring them back what we call bring them back to matrix because Offenders get into collecting as much as they can, you know. They just like to have stuff. And when they get too much stuff, it becomes, you can barely even get into the cells, you know. Like hoarders? Yeah. And so we'll go in and bring them back down to Matrix, take all their extra underwear, socks, shirts, blankets. And some of that we have to do out of necessity because, you know, we run out of, we're like, where's all of our blankets, you know. So, so it's sort of like you're just doing like sort of a Marie Kondo <laughs> prison style. Yeah. Right? Just simplifying and cleaning up. And... Yeah. So, and then a lot of it is, uh, you know, they'll make stuff, amazing stingers and stuff like that. And, you know. What's a stinger? That's, that's what I was telling you. Um, they'll bring, like, metal. They smuggle in little metal pieces from the UCI shops. That, you know, what's a UCI? That's So, within the Department of Corrections, there's actually four divisions. There's APMP, Adult Probation and Parole. There's UCI, which is Utah Correctional Industries. There's the prison operations. And I'm drawing a blank on the world. But, but anyway. Gotcha. The, uh, those are the three main ones. And so UCI is, is the correctional industries. That's where they make license plates. Um, so that's not, just, that's not a myth. I mean, no, they really they do. actually do make license plates. Yes. Yeah, they okay. have I've always heard plan. that my whole life and never knew if that was true or not. Yeah. Okay. They all your every sign you see in the state of Utah, even these street signs out here are all made in the prison. Okay. So when they do that, there's all kinds of little metal things, you know, that they can get. So they'll, they'll smuggle those back and and then they'll cut off a cord off of off of some electronic device that has a plug, and then they'll wire that up, plug it in, and then they stick that piece of metal gets really really hot because it's wired, and they'll use that to heat up their coffee. And we we sell coffee pots and things, you know. They're not as high, high as what you see it like you know, what we can get, but they're because you don't want them to get boiling hot water because that becomes a weapon. weapon. But it'll get it warm, but not warm enough. So they want boiling hot water, so they make these stingers, and it'll get their coffee really hot. So when you see those. That's that's a dime a dozen. You'll see those every cell search. You'll find stinger. So it gets, you know, a lot of times you just get to where, okay, if this stinger isn't blowing the the power, I'm not even going to take it. Right. Because then it'll just tear more stuff apart, build another one. Build another one. So that, I think when you were telling me these stories, because I was just, I was fascinated by their ingenuity and the mind wants to create no matter where they're at. And tell me, tell me some of the things that, that you've, that people have made with items that they've brought in or smuggled in or just... Like you said, you call it MacGyvering, MacGyver, yeah. MacGyver, MacGyver yeah. stuff. I mean, there, there's just endless things that they make. They make, for example, those stingers. They make a lot of hobby craft. <clears throat> um, I've seen them make amazing things out of toilet paper and and cardboard, little cardboard pieces, just amazing art that they'll send out to their families. Um, they make weapons, obviously. Because um, that's something, you know, a question would be, they're inside. How are they getting weapons? Because I was telling my son that. You know, how do they get a weapon? How do they get, you know, are they making them? Or are they just somehow smuggling an actual one in? So you it was can, like, 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 you know, shanks, you hear that term. Yeah. So there's a lot of different weapons that, that they can access. So they can, a simple thing like a toothbrush, they can turn that into a weapon. Or carve it, make it into a Yeah, point. a sharp point. They can, razor blades, they'll take the, the razors out. Tie those to a pen, and that'll be a slasher type of a. a just, yeah, use it as a slasher. 
Um, and then there's the heavy duty shanks that they smuggle in the metal and, or they'll cut off. So like on the, on the beds, they have little metal rails that kind of hold the bunk into place, just maybe two inches high. And they'll, they'll whittle at those, you know, just like in that show. I think it's the Shawshank Redemption where they're whittling away to escape, you know? Yeah. They'll whittle away on those, and if you don't, that's another reason you do those cell searches and inspections is you're looking. See if there's any progress on yeah. it. You're looking to see if there's gouges taken out of the metal, you know, and things like that. Because they'll cut those up. They'll use a little piece of underwear or whatever, you know, to rub back and forth and create friction, and it'll cut through that eventually. And then they'll have a big piece of metal, and then they just sharpen it on, on the ground and walls. And, and then that, that becomes a real serious weapon. And at that point, you're thinking, I mean, that's a lot of thought process. When you're having to, like, caveman your weapons and tools, you create your tools. Mm-hmm. To so, yeah, and weapons, is you can almost guarantee, depending on, you know, the time, like, if, if there's a lot of friction between the gangs, so they'll have, they'll have rules where they have to have a weapon on them at all times. Usually the offenders don't want to carry weapons because... If you get caught with a weapon, you're, that's a huge write-up. It used to be that you're going straight to max, maximum security you yeah, know, for, yeah. for at least a, a year. But it kind of got a little more, less punishable towards the end of my career. But, yeah, they'll take those weapons and and they have to have them it's a it's a rule in their gang their own rules that yeah. their own little law of code mm-hmm. of ethics cuz you, know, you there's sometimes a, like if we pop a wrong door let's say we we had for example the nortes norteños okay street gang and then the sereño street gang the nor basically it's northern or southern and, yeah. and those two they're mexican gangs are bitter rivals on the streets and they're bitter rivals inside the prison and they will fight on site if you pop a wrong door We've had it happen. When you say a pop around, oh, like like. So a, we a, don't we don't house those offenders in the same sections. You can't, or it's going to be a bloodbath. All out. So, in in medium security, because we <clears throat> over in Max they do, and then that's why you can't pop the wrong cell doors, you know, and that's happened. But in in medium security, they're all out generally. So you you have to. So you'll have in one section. The Norteños, and in this section, the Sereños, and they'll be watching each other through the glass. And if you get a new officer, and they're not just not paying good attention, and they could pop um, the wrong door, pop two doors at the same time, and now you have a bloodbath in your horseshoe. So basically, yeah. When you say popping doors, there's opening doors to different sections and yeah. pathways and breezeways to right. Yeah. So, so for example, in that where a lot of the gangbangers are. Um, to give you an idea, so you have your control room kind of in the middle, kind of in an island. It's really not a very good design. but And then around the control room, you have what we call the horseshoe. And it's just a hallway that goes all the way around the control room. And then behind the control room, there's the sally port door. So when you come into the building, you come into the sally port. That's where we do all of our searching them and, you know, whenever they come into the unit. Then they go into the horseshoe, and then from in the horseshoe, there's three sections. And each of those pop right into that horseshoe. And you can override and pop multiple section doors, but you, I mean, that's not what you're supposed to do. You're one section at a time. But sometimes people try to get in a hurry. Too many inmates come in from multiple sections. Because they can all go to the gym together. They can't live together. And even for a while... We created a, a system called A Day and B Day. A Day Serenios would wreck, and then B Day Norteños would wreck. And we did that for five plus years, well, probably more than five years, probably seven or eight years of A B Days. And so now you, you have people who, you know, maybe they forgot it was an A Day and they popped B Day, and you have a problem. So, like, when. The population's mixing. That's a, so, and all that time, these gangs are still, they nobody just softens up and said, hey, this is probably dumb. Maybe we shouldn't be killing each other, wanting to fight all the time. But what, what's the mentality of that? Or is that a whole other so, episode? Well, so, so they do. I mean, some of the gangs can 
iron out problems they have it's constantly changing like what gang has beef with what gang is constantly a changing thing and we have stg officers that go and security threat groups what stg stands for and they, they'll go their whole job is to go interview the gangbangers which is a tough job because gangbangers usually don't like to talk but because oh, silence is kind of a code of a yeah on honor yep so but their whole job is to go gather information and intel and see who's doing what and who's mad at who and because otherwise it's very difficult for us to manage this you know so like say you're a housing sergeant your whole job is an inmate comes in you have to interview that offender find out who he is what he is you know and then decide where you're going to house him you can see how that could be problematic oh, if so you that's don't like have... like your that's like the check-in procedure at the, you know, the hotel yeah and, and you got to make sure that you get him housed you know with the right offender. I I actually had an incident when I was a sergeant back in the day. I had an offender come in and, and they won't tell you, you know, they won't they don't like to say, Yeah, I'm I'm affiliated with this gang. So it, it's nice when we already have that information documented because SDG will go look at their tattoos. I wasn't a tattoo professional, you know, I I missed the tattoo that would have been an indicator that he's a gangbanger, but Several people had missed that indicator because he was still not documented in our OTRAC system as a gangbanger. So I asked him, are you affiliated? No, no, I'm not. Okay. I stick him in a cell. Generally, we don't like to put white inmates with black inmates. Obviously, there's racism and that creates problems. But that was the empty bed that I had. And I didn't think he was affiliated. And so I stuck him in with this black inmate. Well, he goes, and, th- and this goes to having a good rapport, what I talked about earlier. Yeah. So this offender goes in to be housed and realizes he's with a black offender. So he says, I ain't living with this nigger. Really loud on the tier. Well, half of the tier, that was a heavily gang t- tier. The whole tier was different gangs. We had TCG, Tongue and Crip gangs. We had um, lots of uh, black gangs up there. And usually the black gangs will... It, they just go with black. So you have Bloods and Crips. Yeah. A lot of times they'll just, they go with black over over the gang. So, and then you have your white supremacist. We had a bunch of them up there. And this guy was a white, ended up being a white supremacist. This little inmate that I was trying to house. Oh. So now I, I'm sticking a white supremacist. With a black guy. Which... With a black guy, which is very problematic. So, all of a sudden the control room window's banging. And I go up there, and there was this black gangbanger that I had actually had a good rapport with. And he said, what are you doing, Gurney? He goes, you're about to create a war out here. And I look out, and tempers are flaring, arguments are going on everywhere. It's just about to throw down. So I had to go running onto the tier, and I, and I could just feel, you know, the, the tension. Because the tension. The, a lot of these black guys weren't happy that he threw out the N-word. Yeah. And... Which they shouldn't be. No, absolutely. But in there, it's it's different, you know. So I'm dragging everybody in. I anyway, I pull this inmate in. I say, hey, why you? Why this is why I ask you. You don't need to tell me what I ask you, so I can house you appropriately. Anyway, got him moved and got everybody to calm down. Did he tell you why he didn't tell you? No, he's he, just being a dick. Just being a dick, you know. Because he like, didn't care. <laughs> So that's some of the stuff you have to deal with. And then a lot of times that can escalate and it does escalate. And this is where I was telling you early, start of the podcast. A lot of people have a hard time with the profession because you, you make a mistake. Now somebody's getting stabbed, beat up, brutal because of your mistake. Right. You know, and even if it's not your mistake, it's tough to see another human being getting stomped on and, you know. Does that happen a lot? Yeah, just, assaults happen. Just, I usually not to the point of death. I mean, I've only had a few that I can recall off the top of my head where they actually died of, from the stomping. But it does happen, and and the assaults happen, like I said, daily. But they, you know, they slipped in the shower, just <laughs> fell off their bunk. Pecking know? order, yeah. <laughs> and they, they and they do they not they not say if they get if they get jumped they don't they don't rat out people. No, because it's it's worse if they it's worse yeah for they, rotten yeah they then they got to be a 
PC case their whole protective custody. Because they're because they're a considered narc. a rat. Yep. Rat. Once you get the rat jacket, you're that's hard. Yeah, it's hard to ever get that off. So, so they don't like to say. And we'll go watch video, and sometimes we can see it. Sometimes we can't, but but yeah, I've had inmates come out with just brutal. You know, I mean, you know, they got the shit knocked out of them. Yeah, and slipped in the shower. <laughs> so to say, yes, <laughs> and it's it's obvious what happened, but. And we'll go back and review camera and do knuckle torso checks on everybody and do what we can to try to identify who assaulted them. We don't just take that that word, but but it's tough because a lot of times you you just don't know. And if he's not going to say anything, not much you can do. Not much you can do. Wow. So then you well, just they, hope he doesn't get beat up again. <laughs> do you have? Is there like oversight on on the prisons, or do you have? Is it just that happen in you know? Checking things out. Is there like a like a third party entity that will come and? So any any big incident that happens, it gets investigated by outside agencies for sure, and mm. nothing gets investigated by internal. Which makes sense, unless it's just petty stuff. Yeah. Then our own investigation team will do it. But if it's serious assaults causing serious bodily injury, those are investigated usually outside of the prison, or anything staff related would be investigated. Our, our team would investigate it, but obviously so would another agency. So, yeah, there's checks and balances. Okay. Do you feel like you were making a difference? Like you hear, you see, you know, Utah Department of Corrections. Do you feel like people are getting corrected? <laughs> and I, and I, have, I have another young friend who's in there again for heroin. And he yeah. was a, in the bank, Robin Banks, and that's how he got in. And he just, his perspective was that, it's not designed to help. Yeah. And, that, and then, again, it's just his perspective. But generally speaking, is it? The, you just so there's people been in some, cage? There's been some broken stuff with with therapy for, for years and years and years and generations, really. Do I think that it worked? No, not really. And I don't think you'd find too many officers that, when you see the same offenders just circulating through the doors... It does feel, you know, and I, I, when I ended my career as a captain in programming, and we, we had to do um, LSR&R interviews, and basically you're interviewing the offender and trying to find out what areas that you scored things a certain way. You're trying to find out, you know, what their issues are. So you can get them the correct programming. And some of my staff would be like, this isn't going to work. None of it matters, you know. You have to take the approach that you're just trying to do the best you can do to get them the tools that they need. It's really up to them at that point. I mean, we can give them the tools to be successful, but if they if they're not going to, you know, if they're not going to take the tools, for example, I used to have a guy that always said this quote: "You can lead a horse to the water, but you can't make it drink." You know. Yeah. And so that's the that's the process. But yeah, I, I left there feeling. I mean, it's a thankless job, you know, you're not, you don't feel like, I mean, there's days where a move I made or, or like that going out and stopping the incident before it escalated, I probably saved some people with some bloody noses on that particular day. But overall, do I think I did anything to, it, it's hard to say because any successes you might've had, you'll never really know because yeah. you interact with so many offenders and. If one was successful and got out and never came back, you're, you're never going to really know that. And you're certainly not going to know it because of anything you did. Yeah. So it's, it's a thankless, and that's why a lot of people don't like that profession. It's you go to work and you come home and... You're like, what have I done today? What have I done? You know, just yeah. crap. And have you ever run into any anyone that was under your watch that had gotten out that went on to, you know, make their life better, like on the outside? So, like in the grocery store, hey, I haven't ran into too many offenders really um, on the outside. I've run into a few here and there, and they seem to be doing fine. Whether they stayed out or not, I don't know. Right. But there's some that I know. Like, I just know that they wouldn't do it again. I, at least I really believe that they wouldn't do it again. There's some of those offenders, like one of them was in there for a DUI. You know, he, he 
killed a lady while he was driving drunk. And, oh, just a stupid accident. And, and, and that offender was very respectful, very, very good offender. And never broke any rules, just a never. He didn't even have really a prior incident prior to that. And, you know, I think, I think it was a tough lesson for him to learn, but he got out and I, I don't think he'll ever come back, but, but he's one of a lot of inmates that I ran into, but I'd, I'd be shocked if he came back. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Well, I know years ago I was on a hotshot fire crew, Logan hotshots, and we had a crew, there was a, there was a a fire crew out of the prison called the Flamingos. I, yeah. don't know, I don't know if they still have that. So they, they actually did away with the Flamingo program. But okay. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking but about. But it was a, that would we call, you know, it was kind of like our sister crew, wherever, whatever fire we were on, they were always there. And it was always fun to talk to these guys. And I remember talking to one and he had, he was in because he was, him and his wife were, I think they divorced and he was watching his daughter fell asleep or something. And I don't, I think she I think the girl got into some, somehow ended up dying under on his watch. So he got time for that. But just the, mm-hmm. you know, nice, never, we never like, obviously if they're on a, a fire crew outside the prison, they're not a big threat, but never really felt anything, you know, any, any, uns, you know, uns, unsafeness. So those, word, but. those are actually, that, that system was a great system. And, and same with UCI and some of these places that they can go and, really learn some skills because that's what's going to help them be successful. If you can, if an offender comes in, he has no skills and you can teach him some working skills, some basic things that he can go out and get a job and be successful. His chances are, are a lot better that he's going to succeed. And that's how that Flamingo program was. Those guys that did that, usually they had jobs when they got out. They could go get a job doing that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I think the success rate was a lot better. I used to have a friend of mine, another captain, who would tell me stories all the time, and of the successes from that program. So I, it was sad that they don't do that anymore. But. So when someone gets out, is it? I guess every case is is different. But do they? Are there certain programs they like to, to go back out and get reintroduced back into society, depending on how long they're in, or are they just like, "There's the gate. Good luck." So it used to be, you know, early in my career, a lot, lot changed over that 24 years, you know. But it used to be, here's the gate, and go out. You know, and it, it progressed a lot. There towards the end, we had actually have a great system set up right now um, to reintroduce them into the population. We start doing that way before they get to the gate. We're, we're, that was what our job was in uh, programming. A lot of my case managers, their job was doing exactly that, finding out, do you have jobs? Do you have, and APMP has a team that was also doing that. And finding out where they're going to live, making sure they have a house, making sure they have a job, make, you know, before they ever even are out of the prison. So, so by the time they go out, everything's set up for them. Okay. Because if you don't do that, you're, you're guaranteeing just failure. Turn the, turn the revolving door right on and just have them come right back in. So with those, it, you know, it helps. But like I told you in Cancun, you know, it's tough because you have to, you, these guys have friend groups and family groups. And a lot of that is what put them into prison, you know. And so when they go out, say it's family, the your family's part of your red flags. Well, that's tough to, you can't pick a new family. Yeah. And, and who's going to take you in? Yeah. But family. And so... It, so that's tough, you know, and, and even friends, you know, you, you can't just keep associating with the same people that you're getting in trouble with. And that's where the battle is, really, truthfully. If you, if they don't have good support systems, it doesn't matter what we provide them, you know, if, if there's no support in the community. And, and that could be anybody. It could be so What a lot of people don't understand is these, these offenders that are in the prison, you know, causing all this violence and stuff, Every day, or every Tuesday, I should say, they're coming out in, into your communities. You know, they're becoming your neighbors. And is, so, is Tuesday release day? Yeah. <laughs> and so, you, it's in everybody's best interest to make sure these guys are getting the tools they need to be successful because, yeah, they're getting reintroduced into our communities weekly. 
Yeah. And it's it's important that they're prepared. And do they, I don't like the sexual registry. If you've been in prison, do you have to notify anybody that you were other than an unemployment situation? Yeah, so sex. It's, sex that that, yeah. that does, right? Yeah, you, it's the state law. They have to be on the sex registry. So, But the average prisoner that gets let out doesn't have to like go around announcing if they move into a new community that they were in prison. A felony. Well, a lot of a lot of places will ask, you know. A jobs, I know, like employment. Yeah, jobs will ask if you've been convicted, even to rent and things like that. Right. But generally, you know, like you could, like let's say somebody's son gets out and his dad lived, moved right next door to you. You're not going to know that. Yeah. You know. Which is probably good. Yeah. Unless he's a sex offender. You're, yeah. Then, then you would know. But if he's a regular felon. I say regular fell. I don't want that to sound. <laughs> yeah, the average, the average yeah. Joe. And the, your whole career, were you at the the Draper yeah. facility? Yep. Can you in that? Can you bounce around to different facilities if you wanted to, or how yeah, does so, that work? Well, so there's the Gunnison. Oh, there's only two here in Utah. In Utah, you got the state facilities. You got the Draper site, and then the Gunnison site. Gunnison site has. I think four or five different facilities. And then within the facility, there's lots of different units. Draper has females. So if there's any females, they're all at Draper. And then we also um, contract with county jails to house males and females. So almost every county jail is housing state inmates as well. But to transfer around, to tr- it used to be you couldn't transfer. You know, it, it's very difficult. But now... It's pretty easy to transfer down, you just, but there's a wait list. You know, a lot of people want to go to Gunnison, especially with the prison moving to up by the airport. Oh, okay. A lot of staff want to get, you know, down in Gunnison, at least the Utah County, Southern Utah County staff. So yeah, Gunnison's a great, I've been down there several times and it's a great facility, quiet, nice. Is it like a resort? Like a resort. <laughs> you walk outside, you don't hear nothing, just... Because it's quiet out there, yeah. You walk outside at Draper, the freeway's bustling, and, you know. So how, like, how does, how is, like, hey, we're going to put a prison here. How is that chosen? How is that decided? So, legislation. So you've probably seen, oh, it was about five, six years ago. They had a little longer than that, actually. They had five or six sites that that the subcommittee had picked, and. And then they went and met with the communities, and every community, of course, was no, no. Yeah, yeah, of course. And and then it just come down to a vote on where they were going to do it, and Salt Lake County won out. Okay. They had Eagle Mountain. They were looking at one out there, Mona. They were looking at a site. Now, for me, I don't. A lot of people, like, no, I don't want the prison here. There's really no. It's not threatening. It's yeah. just the idea of it. Yeah, there's no risk in it. It's. In my career, we never had anybody escape. You know, it's it's secure, and you don't even really know. Obviously, Draper blew up pretty good with the prison in their backyard. It's a very expensive, wealthy area. Oh, yeah. So it didn't bother them too bad when they was building their houses. But Yeah. <laughs> but then it became a problem after oh, the house was built. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, now that I'm here, I don't want the stuff that was here before I got here to be here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> kind of a thing, yeah. So they're moving out west of the airport, and it'll blow up out there, and eventually somebody will complain that they don't want it out there. And it'll (laughs) like, where do you go? I know it's another fifty years. That's what'll be happening. Yeah, is is the the prison population growing? I mean, I hear that on the news sometimes that it's just you know there's more and more and more, and it's crowded. And is that the case? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is growing, and that's why we have to pull. You know, the Board of Pardons has got the tough job. They have to balance that out. Who's coming in with, we got to release people to create those beds. And Actually, the new prison's going to be a little smaller than our current prison, so it's not like you're gaining more beds. You're actually losing some. It's not bigger? No. Nope, it's not going to be bigger. What's the men- what's the mentality behind that? If, if, if the prison populations are growing, why would they make one that's the same size so or smaller? They're putting a lot of investment into this justice... Uh, reinitiative stuff and they're you know they're putting a lot of money into the fact that um offenders they're hoping they get out and then they're not charging a lot of the small stuff that they used to used to be yeah just you know 
Is that good or bad? Well, that depends, depends on, on who you ask, I, I mean, guess. If, to me, I mean, if someone's got some weed, you know, do they should they be in prison for some weed? I, I mean, that's probably I. I don't. It it depends on what they're doing. To me, it's the crime. Yeah. What crime are you committing? Even if they have hard drugs, you know, are are they law-abiding citizens got pulled over and, and had some meth? Well, they probably don't need to go to prison. They probably need to get into some drug treatment programs. And, yeah. But if they're they got meth and they're robbing and murdering people to that, yeah you know because of it then then obviously those people need well to yeah like my young friend that got addicted to heroin at fifteen he ended up robbing banks and at mm-hmm. that point sorry you you just yeah. you just leveled up brother yeah <laughs> and that's usually so so that's my issue with drugs is that almost almost always that's what's going to happen yeah it usually doesn't get to be where you're a law abiding citizen other than you just like to dab in some. Math, you know, so we- generally weekly meth. Generally, if you're going to go down that road, eventually you need to, because you're probably going to get fired from your job because you're high on meth. You know, you're not going to have money. So then, what do you do? You have to have your meth. You're addicted, and then yeah, and that's when you go do stupid things that now you need to go to prison for. So really, if you want to limit the prison population, you need to the endless drug battle. And then that's not even going into the sex offender. I don't know how you cure that. That or, or just just mental, just mental disorders that don't get treated. Like my wife works at a residential treatment center for mm-hmm. young boys, and they have the money to get treated. And I my assumption is that, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that many of the people that end up in jails or prisons are just had mental disorders that never never diagnosed or never got fixed, and they end up acting out on something. Yeah, there's we. I mean, we have tons and tons of of mentally ill offenders who probably didn't have any diagnoses. And like I was telling you in Cancun, I personally I have a hard time managing those kind of offenders. You got to be a special kind of an officer to deal with those. And I salute all those. Yeah. Anybody listening that works in, at the jail <laughs> that works in the mental health divisions, you got my respect. Well, it's a whole different way of communicating. Yeah. You know. Well, yeah, I think you were saying that just. Just simple logic and stuff that to de-escalate something doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah, those offenders will, like I was telling you, they'll eat their own shit, you know, make sandwiches and just off-the-wall stuff, you know. They're just, just like, wow, how do I communicate with yeah, this Yeah, what do I do? Where do I go with here? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, and medium security, you don't have to deal with, with regular offenders, you don't have to deal with that kind of behavior. You know, they're just the off-the-wall stuff. You, you just have to deal with. You know, right. the politics. All right. In, in wrapping up here, what's the craziest thing you saw in this 24 years that you were part of? Yeah, there's a, quite a few. I know. There's a, yeah, and maybe it's hard to like, out of all so, the craziness, what was prob- the most crazy? Probably the most crazy. So when I first started there, there, there was a real fascination amongst a certain group of probably 20 inmates or so that loved to cut on themselves. They were always cutting on themselves. One guy, he would cut his guts out and just hold them in his hand. Be like, he was that, yeah. not just and surface cutting. he would talk to totally normal. Yeah. He would say, yeah, I think I need medical. And he's laughing. He's got his guts, big gut pile just sitting in his hands. Like his intestines in his hands. Yeah. And Holy then, cow. So then there's that. and then But the probably the weirdest one was the I had a offender who cut his nut sack, cut his, his nut right out of his sack. That was bizarre. And we pulled him out, you know, and the doctor just stitched him up right there in the section, you know. We put it back in and sewed him up and that was that was a that was when I left work going, What in the hell am I doing here? <laughs> I see. You know, but the cuttings to me were some of the grossest things that I had to deal with just because then you gotta, you know, go clean that up and the blood and the smells and um Hangings were always a disturbing thing for me to see. Um, nobody likes to see that. No, no, seeing someone. Yeah, and then dead of course the, not. you know, the violent assaults. There's there's somewhere you had offenders you couldn't even see their eyes, you know, because they'd just been attacked so badly. Yeah, yeah, and you do CPR on them and vomits, stuffs coming out of the eye sockets, and uh. it's a brutal, brutal. Some of the stuff you have to see. 
That's what I mean is, and I was kind of telling you this, um, you know, inmates are always trying to get one over on you. They're always trying to lie to you and game you and, and you kind of get to a point where you kind of, I was telling you out in Cancun, you view things from the 40 yard line, a football game, say you're watching it through a fence and you can only see the 40 yard line to the 40 yard line. Yeah. And you kind of get to the point in society when you leave the prison where you're Everybody's trying to game me. Everybody's lying. Everybody's a sex offender, you know, whatever. Because that's the view that you see life through. And that's been one of the the greatest things with retirement for me is stepping back and actually saying, yeah, I can see the whole field see the now. whole field now. And it, it's, that's one of the reasons why they had 20-year retirements for law enforcement in the first place. And they took that away after, about halfway through my career and made it 25 years. Hope they go back to 20 because they, it's good to get a refresher from that kind well, of. Well, that's a, I mean, yeah, you're you're. Uh, I've got two retired cops in in this neighborhood here that I live in, and they see they. I can see it. They see everyone as a perpetrator. Mm-hmm. The the dark you know the darkening of your soul. I guess you mm-hmm. know how do you how do you not and the things you see like the things you just described. Yeah. To see that all the time. So you, that was the hardest thing for me. Is like. <laughs> Sex offenders, you know, you'd see a lot of sex offenders. A lot of them were were very active in the LDS church. You know, obviously we're in Utah. A lot of them were bishops or even higher state presidents, yeah. even even Quorum of the Seventy. You know, we've had all kinds of offenders in there. And and you you see the horrific stuff that they they did to their victims. You know, it really. So I my wife would always get mad at me because if somebody. If an old guy would come up and rub my son's head when he was little, oh, he's so cute, instantly. You're like perpetrator. Yeah, I'm thinking, child molester. What, what kind of guy's going to come up and tell me I got a cute kid, you know? And yeah. That's some of the negative side effects of the environment you work in. That's what I'm talking about. You got to step back and say, okay, I mean, is he a sex offender? There, yeah, maybe 60% chance. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. But that's what I mean. You have to step back and say, was that the worst dealing with just what those guys have done? So sex offenders are a different one to deal with. I guess you don't see their, I guess you read their report, but you don't see the damage that they've done. Yeah, you don't see the damage, but they, so street cops, like my brother, he's done several investigations on that kind of stuff, being a street cop, and they have to deal with both sides, the victims, and and so it's really, really horrific on a street cop to... Yeah. To go through those and have to investigate those, we we only have to deal with the with the perpetrator, so it's a lot easier. Yeah, mentally frustrated, you still get frustrated and pissed. Like if you read those reports, which a lot of times you have to, it's not always that you can say I'm not going to read it, depending on what your job is. Yeah, but yeah, it's very very challenging. Well, I I have a sister who was molested or abused for about a year by a 15 year old. It wasn't like a full grown man, but a 15 year old when she was seven, she's 57 now. She didn't tell a soul for 40 years and just has been abusing herself. And you know, I can say all this because I've interviewed her on the show, but literally her whole life has just been Mm self-destruction and she got a family and she's married and got two kids, but she's still, she's, she's eating herself to death for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And that's her, that's the only control she has, but, that because of that dude and who was he just a dumb 14 year old kid or was he an evil perpetrator i don't know but the damage it did to her mm-hmm. is it's lifelong yeah and that's the unfortunate thing and then that cycle repeats itself you know yeah. we see that all the time somebody who was violated when they were a kid usually a lot of times they end up violating yeah. somebody as they get older you know it's just it, yeah. repeating the cycle but usually sex offenders are pretty easy to manage they're just a lot of them are entitled and, and and whiny and that, but their management, they don't do the stupid things that like the gangbangers, you know. But there, there's problems because like a gangbanger not going to live with the sex offenders. So you, you know, yeah. You have so to there kinda... is there is I've heard that too that there if you're if that's your crime then you're going to be you're going to get targeted on the inside. Is that true? Well, there's so many of them sex offenders that that it, that's not like oh you're a sex offender I'm going to be but. But they'll say, you're not living in my cell. They try to say, you're not living in my section. And that's where we have to step in and say, look, you know, 
they are living in your section. Yeah, and you got to just it, deal with it's it. It's hard because if we tell a fender, a sex fender, hey, you're living in there, and they walk in there, and eight gangbangers are like, you better get the hell out of here. We're going to beat the shit out of you. And the guy comes out and says, I ain't living in there. You know, who who is the offender going to be more afraid of? Us or the eight gangbangers is about to whoop his ass. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So that it's, it's very frustrating, you know, as a housing sergeant to try to house people playing those games. And you have to get stern with the gangbangers and say, okay, you guys want to play this way? We'll start yanking you out and we'll move three or four of them out. And then they get pissed because, you know, and then we say, look, if you guys want us to mess with your world. Yeah, we'll break you know, up your family. We'll do we don't expect you to live in the same cell with them. But they, we have to house these offenders, you know. And then a lot of times once you remind the offenders who, who's running the institution, you know, then they'll, okay, he can live in the section. But it's constant games. And that's what I mean. It's yeah. it's politics and you have to play them. You have to. The same. You have to know who's running the section, and then you have to make decisions and manage accordingly to let them know. You you might be running the section with the offenders, but this is our house. This is our house, and there's things we got to do. And if you're not going to do it, then we'll manage you. All this happiness. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you retired. I bet yeah. you are too. Oh yeah, it's uh, you know, I go to lunch with a couple of my friends time to time, and they, you know, they'll tell me stories, and I just the ones that are still in. Yeah, they're still working up there. Okay couple of my lieutenants and i just enjoy listening to the stories now and then i continue eating and well that sucks guys anyway i'm going to cancun next week (laughs) (laughs) wow but i don't miss it i don't miss it one bit yeah but i don't regret working up there i i enjoyed it i enjoyed working with the staff i respect the heck out of the staff that do that job for very little appreciation and very little money yeah you're definitely not there for the money. No. So, no. but it was a it was a worthwhile career that now hey I got a pension for the rest of my life and so that's yeah. why I did it was yeah. for the pension. So, well, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> Is there anything else that I I have not asked you that you want to 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 share that I maybe didn't touch on? Um, or have you really. or have you dumped it all out? Well, there's probably a lot I haven't dumped out. You could get several podcasts and get into whatever you wanted to get into to no, it's... to find out. To, but yeah, no, it, I've talked about a lot, a lot of the stuff. No, like flashbacks or nightmares or anything. You, oh, no. you, you pretty much comp- move, no, move it, on with it. You know, and it's it's funny you say that because just how things have changed. Like early in my career, I remember we had a hanging and. We were, it was a debriefing with all the staffs in there's like 20 of us, you know, and they brought pizza and we're eating pizza and, and the, the ESERT guy comes in, you know, and he's like, so does anybody have any mental health concerns over what they seen, you know, and you, you're talking to a bunch of, you know, prison guys that are <laughs> macho prison guys <laughs> and they're you know you think they're gonna say hey, oh yeah i'm mentally struggling right now i'm disturbed by what i said no so it, and that's how it was when i was early in my career it was just now they take people aside and and especially the the new generation of staff isn't the same got the same macho mentality as my generation it's it's a lot more you know you know how the new generation they're, they're little I don't want to say softer, but they're more, Empath- things affect them, it seems like, a yeah, lot maybe more. Maybe more empathetic or something, maybe, yeah. I don't know. They they have, we have a lot more staff that have that, issues, you know, when they what, see something. They see. And they don't, you know, they have a hard time coming to work. You know, back in my, what I'm saying is a lot of the people in my day, you didn't, you, if you had issues, well, you sure the hell weren't even going to admit it. Yeah. You just, oh, heck no. That, uh, no you think it's mean. better now? Or you think, what? Well, what? I'm not saying it's better, I'm just saying that the, the way they handle it is better because they don't they don't ask you in a big group who needs to talk to who needs, health, who needs you know? a shoulder to cry on. <laughs> they don't do that. They'll they'll make you go in and one on one and talk to somebody. And then if you Which have it, it's probably healthy. It's definitely more yeah. healthy than just asking everybody in the open. So the prison's changed a lot for the better yeah. in that category. Well, I just know that I was an EMT for a very short while, and 
I'm zero for two on CPR right now. And those don't leave you. I mean, I'm sure if I did that all the time, I, they would all run together, but that was only two. Yeah. And you, that stuff like that stays with yeah. you in some ways. That's how I, I talk about that with the hangings. You know, I had four hangings in my career and I was 0 for four. On, on, on getting to him or on getting to him but we we actually did revive one but you know he was on a machine at the hospital and the, his family eventually decided oh. to pull the, so, so we revived him but not not enough it was too late enough. Yeah. yeah so so yeah i was over four so i i i don't know if it's just me the way i deal with things but i i try not to focus on those things so i would just deal with the incident and not personalize it yeah you know it was just part of the job do what i had to do and then when what the results were, the results were, yeah. and I moved on and didn't really think about it, and just went about my yeah, business. Got to do your job, yeah. <laughs> and that's yeah. how I always just dealt with things. But when you stop and look back at some of them, it is. I mean, there were some some of my early days. Those cuttings I told you about when I worked in the infirmary, my first week, they kind of got to me to the point where I never ever wanted to work that infirmary again. You know, so anytime they try to say, "Hey, you work in the infirmary," no, <laughs> I don't want to work the infirmary. Wow, yeah. Well, yeah. that's a messy... That's Even messy. till the end of my career, I didn't want to work the infirmary because that's one of the one places where stuff's always happening. Yeah. Is in the infirmary. Hats off to the staff that work in yeah, there. Yeah, that's... Oof, yeah. But, well, man, thank you so much for sharing that. That's uh, very enlightening and eye-opening just on what... You know, we, we drive by it. We drive by these places and you just... You don't even think, really. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Ki- people's kids in there. Yeah. You think about that. Like for me, whenever I drive by, I don't really even think about the offenders. I think about the staff and the great job that they're doing and thankless job. And I mean, you think about it, if nobody's doing the job, what happens then? And it's getting it's getting very low staffed. And yeah, people just don't want to do it anymore. Don't want to do it, it anymore. Yeah. And it's hard to get people to come and do it. So my hat's off to the staff that that are that is doing putting it. up in the grind day in well, and day you out. did it man so you know you know yep so. and i appreciate everybody that's up there doing i hope people continue to find some interest in it because somebody's got to do that or job. ideally if we could just figure out how to fix all the problems in society yeah. we wouldn't need that yeah, even you know? better <laughs> but that's i think that's it's always going to be with us you know yeah. i don't know how this how it all ends i don't know but yeah well thanks man you betcha appreciate it okay Thank you again for listening to the Parish the Thought Show. We would love your comments and feedback on our website at briankeithparish.com slash feedback. If you love or hate what you hear, please give us a rating on whatever platform you find us. You're still here? Click on the next episode for more from the Parish the Thought Show.